Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lamp, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And today we have another rendition of Toxicologist vs. the Internet with a really great guest, Dr. Frank Polachuk, PharmD, D-A-B-A-T. Many of you out there in the Poisonverse might know of Frank. He was one of the original EM pharmacists, and he was one of the very early cohorts of diplomates of the American Board of Applied Toxicology. His impact on the pharmacy profession is pretty profound, so a lot of us know him. He is currently a proudly retired professor emeritus of clinical sciences at UIC, where he spent nearly 20 years as a pharmacy educator and the director of their PGY-1 residency program. He remains a consultant for the Illinois Poison Center and was integral in the Toxicon Medical Toxicology Fellowship and trained many of the people who are even on this show, like Dr. Jillian Theobald. And he's the co-author of the textbook, Poisoning and Toxicology Handbook, 4th edition. Most notably about Frank, he's mastered the use of colorful language, we'll say, through years of practice. So listener discretion advised in this one, as there's some adult words used. But it's nothing you wouldn't hear in passing in the emergency department hallways. And as expected, we have an absolute blast on this episode. We start off hearing about Frank's history and how he got into toxicology. If you want to hear what it's like practicing in the emergency department in the 1980s, when emergency medicine attendings weren't actually a thing in a lot of places, it's a really fascinating history. Then we have a little fun myth-busting, some toxicology trithes, as Frank likes to call them truths, or at least supposed truths, that when you examine the literature might actually be myths. We talk about things like, do you need BAL before giving calcium disodium meditate in severe lead poisoning, and a variety of other fun topics. Then we go on to do some stump the toxicologist like we normally do, and I am proud to say that I was stumped. If you're like me and you don't have a great toxic differential for a penile lesion, you'll get one after this show. Finally, instead of answering drug-related questions from the internet like we normally do in this type of episode, Frank and I end up managing a case of poisoned AI. We ask ChatGPT to pretend to be a poisoned patient, but not tell us what the poison is. We get to ask it for lab values and imaging and symptoms, and it's pretty fun trying to sleuth out what is going on. We eventually identify the poison, and it's a lot of fun, but really, I think it's a glimpse into what the future of toxicology training could be using high-fidelity toxicology patient simulations with the help of artificial intelligence. Maybe it's something you could bring to your own training program if you're out there helping train the future toxicologist. As you can tell, we're going to cover a lot of interesting topics on this episode, but if you are one of my high-yield friends listening on 1.5 speed, you can jump to minute 30 to go right into the cases. Okay, almost time for the show. But first, our standard disclaimers. We're going to be talking about real fatalities. And while this allows us to discuss a lot of great learning points, some of these were intentional fatalities. If you or a loved one are struggling with thoughts of suicide, someone's there to listen. 1-800-273-8255 is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Please call. Finally, even though we're going to be discussing medical management, treatment, and diagnosis, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and we are not providing medical advice. If you think you're being poisoned or you have a general healthcare question, call your primary care provider or reach out to your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show.
Hey, everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan, and we have a doozy of a show today. We have a guest on one of the, I think, founders of EM Pharmacy. He's also one of the earliest uh, ABATs, none other than Frank Polachek with us today. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh, my my pleasure, Ryan, but I hope you know what you got yourself into here. Oh, I I very much do. Many of you have probably heard of or read something that he's written or heard his rantings on some email chain. I more, more recently got to hang out with you at not only ASHP Midyear, but also the first ever uh, EM Pharmacist Conference, which was in Austin, Texas this year. That was a lot of fun. What did you think of the conference? Oh, I liked the conference. I really loved what was done with the uh, the virtual one the first time. I, uh, I I have not historically, and to my great chagrin and regret, I was immature and stupid. I wasn't as social or involved with any pharmacy community or the professional communities for a long time. I, I, I have a deep um, problem with bureaucracy and stupidity <laughs> and guidelines and people telling me how I'm supposed to do things. And, and that's how people usually know me because I'm ranting about something being stupid. And uh, and I, I regret it because I could have learned from the other people. I had a blast. I learned things I didn't know. You can never stop learning when it comes to talks or EM because our literature sucks. And uh, and I and people were very responsive to it. And, and I think that somewhere along the way where I came from back in the old days, you know, a lot of the teaching was abusive and awful. A lot of the behavior was not courteous. And and yet at the same time, there was a lot, there seemed to be a lot more transparency to how people thought about you. And, and you weren't really sure if they were being nice. And I learned to be very, I'm told I'm very blunt or frank. And uh, and, in, and in that regard, maybe that's true. And people responded to it. You know, it's just that I'm acting different sometimes, I think. I don't know that I always make sense. Well, you make a lot of sense to a lot of people, I think. And and I, I appreciate you being on the show with us. Um, this is a show about toxicology, and you were one of the early talks, uh, you know, ABAT, probably in one of the original, you know, the first starting classes of people who have passed the ABAT exam. Um, a lot of pharmacists are interested in the American Board of Applied Toxicology. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and your history uh, with Illinois Poison Center how you kind of got into this. We're going to dive in. We're going to do our normal stuff, listeners. We're going to do some cases. But for right now, I want to hear a little bit more about Frank. So can you tell me how you actually got into this whole field in the beginning, in the first place? Oh, gosh. I was a uh, bachelor's pharmacist, not a PharmD. There, it was kind of a relatively burgeoning field at the time to get your PharmD. And uh, I just wanted to be a community chain, independent pharmacist. I was working in a pharmacy. And then they offered me this great job, and, and it wasn't that great. It sucked, and they thought they were being wonderful. I wanted to do more. I got my PharmD, and I had a drug information rotation while I was trying to get out of one of those hospital rotations, because, I mean, that just sounded awful. <laughs> and I liked it a lot. There's a lot of, I was getting all kinds of questions from people who I, you know, I had been indoctrinated culturally to believe knew everything like physicians and teachers and i started writing i realized the questions i had being asked were being used as people's lectures in the college of pharmacy and i thought that's that's bull 
I'm writing that lecture. I'm doing the work. I'm not getting paid for it. I'm a damn, what the hell? And uh, so I went, I got my PharmD in Philadelphia. There was a physician there, Gary Cuppet, who gigantic influence on myself, on Ruddy Rose, on other people that were at Philadelphia and, and trained there and got involved with uh, Fred Henretic and Tony Temple, who were very early researchers with Tylenol. And it just sounded fascinating. But I didn't see it as a career. I mean, I didn't, I came back to the University of Illinois to do research, clinic phase one clinical research, and I did a fellowship. And I had to start with doing a residency, and it required me being on call in the emergency department. And here's where I really start answering your question. The emergency department of the University of Illinois in, in 1984 had no attending physicians. Uh, they The Department of Medicine and Surgery thought this emergency medicine stuff is garbage, and we don't need specialists in that because our residents know how to handle these cases. And, and so the ED had a physician who was a colleague of mine for many years, Gerald Lakin. And Jerry would come in Monday through Friday as a Department of Surgery faculty member and sign off on charts from the entire day before. Wow. Um, that, and, that's the same Gerald Lichen that is the co-author of the textbook you wrote. Yes. And, and he always going to figure prominently in this early. And I just, you know, I'm old, so you're getting a lot of story here. You're going to have to do some editing. So the, the, the emergency department was staffed during the day by a pharmacist uh, Monday through Friday. And we actually had a, uh, a SIVA QST machine, which was an enzyme linked um, drug machine. And we could run with head reagents and we would, we would, be given blood by a nurse or a physician or draw our own blood as pharmacists, spin it down, put it in, a, you know, put it in, a set, let it coagulate, spin it down, draw it up, put it in the machine. And then we could run on the spot within an hour, give you a result drug levels for theophylline, which was huge back then, phenobarb, phenytoin, acetaminophen, and aspirin. Those were big things for us back then, several of which are still very big things now. And, uh, and then at five o'clock at night, the pharmacist would go home and really the name you might know is Michelle Zell Cantor because she was my emergency department preceptor. Michelle would go home and then the pharmacy residents would come in at five o'clock and staff the ED for the remainder of that night until eight o'clock the next morning. And then we had 24 hour shifts on the weekend. And we were there along with the medicine side had an R3, two R2s, and a bunch of interns. The surgery side had an R3, two R2s, and interns. And that was it. All patient care, uh, weekends, nights, overnights, all was just us. And, and so when I say, you say, how did I get in there? Well, the EM residents, the trainees, the trainees, they weren't EM, that were in that department said, okay, you guys do the theophylline levels, asthma's kind of protocolized. We all, all we do is theophylline because that's all we had to worry about because we didn't have beta dose inhalers and, and occasional shots of epi. You take care of the asthma patients and, and you do the phenytoin and phenobar. You take care of the seizure patients because really, you know, there isn't a whole lot else to do with them. And, and, and you've got to handle the overdoses. We don't know anything about the damn drugs. You take care of those. And I was, and my fellow residents and the people we trained, uh, I helped train afterwards, we were in essence uh, physician extenders, physician assistants. We, we were what pharmacy, um, many people accused pharmacists of one who did the PharmD wanted to be, they wanted to be MD wannabes and, and just got off on it. And I did not get off on it. There was a lot of that job that was 
kind of stupid and dumb. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like being woken up at two o'clock in the morning to run a theoplin sample on an asthmatic that has to have a minor surgical procedure done, but they have to have a good level before they can do the procedure. And it's just, you know, it's so, I don't want to be a tech and that we've had a lot yeah. of tech. Anyway, it sounds first fun. Year, um, yeah, my, it was, oh, it was a blast, Ryan. I, there, we knew how to draw blood. We drew from A-lines from ICU patients we were certified for. A lot of things that a hospital would get uh, a JCO score, whatever I'm supposed to call the stupid thing now. So um, we, we kept records, our own shadow chart. And there was a patient in my one year of residency with on-call that presented to the emergency department 67 times. And uh, every ED has a frequent flyer. And this guy was your classic drunk. Uh, maybe mid-30s, looked like he was 82. Uh, he came in uh, a third of the time as Theophilin or as Phenobarber. Both were over 30. A third of the time, they were both zero. And, and every now and then, one of them was therapeutic. And the other one, eh, you know, who knows? Well, he came in once and he had a Phenobarb of 126 and a phenytoin of 130 or something. Ooh. And we wrote him up, uh, we dialyzed him, we wrote him up, uh, we wrote him up two more times in the next three years. Uh, I think wow. he holds a record for somebody being the patient discussed at an NACC team meeting wow. on, uh, on posters. But um, Jerry, Jerry said, oh, let's do this. And I'm like, oh, come on. And he said, let's do it. And so I went to the, uh, you know, it was the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology an ACCT meeting in Baltimore. And there was 400 people there, maybe, maybe. I'm standing at this poster and uh, you name the name. And they came up and were the most polite and nice people. And then Jerry would turn to my side. And if you know him, you know exactly what he did. He smacked me upside the arm and, and he would go, you know who that was like, right? And I'd go like, no, that's Louis Goldfrank. And all these people are talking to me. And I was like, this is really cool. And nobody knew who anybody else was in terms of job. And that sold me on tox. That was how I got into tox. I went, this is so damn cool. Now, I actually didn't take an EM or a tox job because there weren't any at the time. And I was in internal medicine for two years. And then M Michelle and she left and went to county, which was when Toxicon started in uh, like about 89. And uh, I started part-timing in the ED. I went there full-time. I started an EM tox residency fellowship program ran it for 10 years uh i got downsized lack of there was a bad stock market crisis and i couldn't justify my job because i didn't document anything and uh, they said well he doesn't do anything well everybody loves him they all want him <laughs> well there's no records that he's ever there and uh and i i ran a residency program at u of i for 20 years then and just stayed involved as best i could and I think the reason I, I stuck with it all is that um, there's so much that can be done with very basic skills. You know, I often hear the medical residents tall all the time, really the art of clinical toxicology is of supportive care, but it's actually basic pharmacology, basic pharmacokinetics, basic thinking skills are really, really important. And, and we don't teach those at all well anymore, in my old man grumpy opinion. You bring up a lot of things that I my one of my colleagues, another ABAP, Matt Stanton, he files events for everything he does. And I don't because I'm lazy and I just like to do things cognitively. And he says, well, it's really nice when you're at a meeting and you could show your manager all these things you've been doing. And I was like, my manager never asked me. They don't. Brian, at that, but one day I would advise you <laughs> I, find right. a way. 
I really would. Um, I I regret it. I regret it. But then I found out I I what what made me good in more good than bad. The risk benefit analysis for me to be decent in talks and EM. Um, most of the same skills transferred into running a, a residency program extremely well, yeah. which is managing people who don't want to do what you want done and getting them to do it, making <laughs> them think it was their idea. It's yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, that's a where a storied and really fun ride to the career, and it's uh, you clearly made a big impact on a lot of people. Uh, I work with Jill Theobald, Dr. Theobald, and she talks about. Uh, your impact on the Toxicon training program all the time. And you're, I believe you have something that you've coined called truths. Yes, truths. Truths that are actually... Uh, they are, yeah. they're, they're toxicology truths that are really myths when you look at the foundational literature. Um, uh, yeah. You got any examples of truths we could... Oh, well, the whole argument about charcoal, there's no data to support charcoal decontamination with clinical outcomes. That's crap. Um, there's no... I mean, I, it's all... I'm, oh. You know, the fact that the Scandinavian method that people forget about that included ICUs, developing ICUs and intubating people and lavaging them, also, all those patients had charcoal and that improved mortality from barbiturate overdoses. Oh, I didn't know barbs were dangerous. Oh, come on. They can't be. And I'm going to stop. But that's one. Another one, this is one that drives me nuts. And, and I, I don't get off my ass and write it up. There's some common themes. And one would be you have to give uh, BAL before you do EDTA. That's garbage. Can you drop the BAL calcium? Because guess what? BAL, truth or not, BAL is gone forever. So no one's going to use that anyways. What what was your thoughts on using BAL before calcium disodium meditation? Well, if you go back and you look at Chisholm stuff, all the stuff that modern lead therapy is based on, I'll do this quickly. Wait, wait, I, yes. I got to interrupt. I'm sorry. So for the listeners, in case we've been on a little bit of a tangent here, what we're oh. talking about right now is there is a... Uh, suggestion that if you're going to use calcium disodium editate, which is a chelator that we use for a lot of things, but severe lead poisoning is one of them. If you give calcium disodium editate, which is IV, you're going to pull all the lead out of a, someone's bones, and then it's going to redistribute because you have a huge body burden in the bones, and now you're putting it into the blood, and now you're going to potentially deliver more lead from the blood to the brain. So you'll find it written, you have to give BAL four hours before giving calcium disodium meditate. BAL is another chelator. You give it IM, really painful, deep injection. Uh, if you want to know more, listen to episode two of the Poison Lab, the other problem with bullets, we talk about the chelators. Um, but basically, you have to give BAL four hours before to bind up any of the lead that calcium disodium meditate brings. Frank says... Garbage. <laughs> okay, Garbage. now we're talking about Chisholm Clinic. Uh, go. All that stuff was from a series. Okay, in my clinic here in Baltimore, he would take a group of children seen over uh, months. He would he would put a protocol on them. There were no IRBs. And then he would do a different series of studies with a different set of children in the next few months. And then he would do historical controls between these two groups that weren't controlled in any manner, none. Easy to look up and find as long as you can get to 1950s papers in, in old, old, which I've done because it drove me nuts. Now, he showed that the same thing happened with BAL and EDTA when used alone. And he then one day said, I give them together and I gave the BAL first. 
clearly what's missing here must be protocol now no there was no protocol there was no comparator there was nothing and 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 then it was deeply it was it was supported strongly by some animal studies that were done in rats around 1984 by the lead author's last name was hyphenated Corey dash Schlechter. And a very, very commonly referenced paper. And the problem with that paper, and Jillian will be happy to tell you how she did some of the legwork on this. The problem with that paper is that they dosed these animals and then they um, they gave them chronic lead from their feed over a month. And then they would, they would dose them with drug and then sacrifice them and analyze tissue samples. Now, I'm going to get complicated here, and I don't know how well it'll work orally. But they found that in that study, that in one of the treatment groups at one time point, the brain concentrations went up, which supported what you kind of alluded to before, this concept that I give a chelator, I get rid of a whole bunch of drug from the blood, and then it rushes in from everywhere else, and then it goes to the brain and it causes rebound encephalopathy is what is a term people use. The thing was in that rat study, they took brain. And they put it into like an incinerator and fried it and did the ash concentrations. All right. There's a flaw. That method's no longer allowed because it didn't account for blood that was in the brain. Oh. And we're getting both blood and brain. You already know the blood concentration was substantially higher, even though it's a much smaller amount of tissue. But you just chelated a whole lot into the blood. That's a great point. That's a very important point. That's your Dr. Theobald. Now here fundamental pharmacokinetics. This is totally wrong. If you look at radio-labeled lead studies, the amount of lead in the brain is in the order of 1,000th at, at highest, 1,000th of blood. I, and it's in equilibrium with blood. They're not the same concentration. It's not passive infusion. Now, I suddenly clear the blood. Chelator worked 100% perfect. There's nothing in the blood. Concentration gradients would say it's got to come out of those organs and go into the blood until it re-equilibrates. What organs will empty the fastest and start to raise the concentration in the blood? The ones that get the most blood flow. Now, does your bone get a substantially larger amount of blood flow than the brain? I'm going to say no. Of course not. There's a lot of storage site there, but takes time to pull much out. Well, in, in essence, when I pull out of the major target organs drug, to reestablish a new equilibrium concentration with, then you would think that at best, I am po- I'm going to have less drug in the whole system because I got rid of some and there'll be less in every site. And I might actually clean out the more highly perfused sites first. Well, how do you explain the symptoms? And then I go, have you ever guaranteed in these studies that there was no more lead in the gut from these acute kids that he was treating that full of goddamn paint? And the answer to that would be no, Ryan. I, I, I'll go to my grave thinking, because I can't prove and we don't have the studies to confirm or deny, that that might be what's happening then. This is why we actually have so many debates within toxicology, because we have such limited literature. And when you really examine it, sometimes it's very flawed. Yet we have such dogma and doctrine that stems from it. So it's wonderful to push back and hear, well, hey, actually, that's more of a truth than it is a truth. And I, I, I'm i really appreciative to have you on the show and showcase some of those examples. We may oh, not even get your damn cases. You keep That's going. okay. No, this was wonderful. All right. Any listeners, if you want to challenge, feel free to you know record your uh, rebuttal and send it in. You know, and you know what? I also want to bring up, I really appreciate, I, I have never found a single person 
who had a bachelor's in pharmacy and then went on to get their doctorate in pharmacy, that there's always a degree of critical thinking that they display because this was before the time when PharmD was just the entry level everybody gets this degree to get into the field you check your boxes and then you're in there are a certain cohort now where the farm d is just something to get through so they can get to their job so i feel like the group where the farm d was uh really an extra step it was an extra piece that wasn't needed it was only for those who really wanted to get down into the the underlying whys who really went for that I feel like it's people who really put the the title of doctorate to work. So I'm thrilled to have you on the show. I love getting to hear about this. And thanks for taking us down that historical lane. You've definitely seen a lot. Uh, and, you know, covering all the way back to the Baltimore-led clinics. And I know you've been and remained active in talks, dealing with our TikTok, you know, trends that we have now. Stupid TikTok challenges. I guess the new one now is Bird Box, where people blindfold themselves and then see if they can drive down the street or ride a bike or just don't do talk stupid with TikTok challenges. That's, that's, the thoughts are the, actually the, the, the most prolific poison. So that's a bad. <laughs> that is a bad TikTok talks or talks. Uh, anyways, yeah. yeah, we actually studied the Ben after the Benadryl challenge. We did an NPDS study of diphenhydramine overdoses, and we saw more severe outcomes in the adolescent patients afterwards because they were taking whole bottles. I unfortunately, someone just died. A thirteen-year-old just died of doing the diphenhydramine challenge. Oh, I missed that too. It's really sad. Um, so still serious toxicities yeah. are occurring from this kind of stuff. You know, speaking of, this is a little off topic, but uh, some interesting talks news, right? We have the TikTok trends. That's always in the news. They just, the the person who was uh, potentially responsible, I'll say, for the Tylenol cyanide murders yeah. just died. I just kind of learned about this person i knew about the murders but this person wrote into procter and gamble that he was the one lacing the pills with cyanide and was arrested on extortion charges but they never arrested him because he was requesting procter and gamble give him a million dollars or he'd keep lacing the tablets but they never were able to prove that he did it i don't know if that uh made any rounds in the chicago community oh yeah yeah there was quite a uh Twitter and email exchange amongst us about it. Um, and, and I had to clarify once again that I was in school in Philadelphia with well-documented attendance and employment at healthcare institutions <laughs> the weekend of the murders. And in no way, shape, or form could I have been involved uh, with anything to do with that. Um, I'm not the only person they accuse it, but certainly old-time talks people tend to get looked at askance when somebody close to them uh, dies that's well that is uh, wise to do that i think yeah (laughs) those with the knowledge all right i I don't know if we can digress any further we we have to get to the cases now so okay for the listeners if you're interested in talks as frank has demonstrated there are many avenues there if you're a critical thinker if you like to learn what answers are not be told what they are this might be the place for you and there is no better example of that than uh dr frank polichuk professor emeritus so we're we're gonna jump into now uh doing some cases so this is just some case learning and uh you heard the blurb in the beginning of the show we're gonna be talking about real cases of poisoning you know we're not making light of any 
uh, you know, serious toxicities that have happened to people, but they do happen. And uh, oftentimes we are called upon to make them better. So the purpose of this is so that we can uh, help understand or walk through the thought process of somebody who gets called about poisonings, what they would think about when they encounter a patient who has these constellation of symptoms. So you, you yourself, the listener can also test your metal, see if you get right uh, what's going on. And it's just a fun venue for us to um, wax theoretical about toxicologic subjects. So the only rules, you cannot give away what the poison is, obviously. Um, so if there's an antidote that would be really clear, like, you know, if this is, um, you know, one specific antidote for one specific poison, just try to censor that. Otherwise, go for it. And we can, uh, you know, put, give as much information as you think would be relevant without giving away what it is. Uh, how would you like to kick this up? Would you want to throw a case at me or would you like me to give? I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a creature of chaos, Ryan. You could roll a dice if you want, or or flip a coin. I don't care. What, what's the normal? Uh, what is there a normal sequencing? Your other guests? Have? There, there really is not. I like to give. All right, here's here's the chaos. Yeah. Pick a number between one and ten. I'm holding one behind my back. Yeah. Oh wait, now the... that's five. Then I'm just going to say it's five. Be, or you know, I don't want to be difficult, but actually, you have to pick a number between zero and ten. Zero and ten, seven. Okay, if it was greater than five, I was going to go first. So, all right, and you have no way to prove that, but this is... This I'll, I'll accept it. Let's have it. All right, so I'm going to give you a case. I, you know what? This is going to be the easiest case that you've ever... And I, you know what? It's okay. I know you're going to get this immediately, but it's something I want to talk about anyways. Okay. I'm going to just ease you in. So... A 31-year-old male presented to the emergency department with sudden-onset hematemesis that started about an hour ago. For listeners not familiar, that means vomiting blood. Uh, physical exam and vital signs were completely normal. So heart rate, blood pressure, everything looked good. Nothing wild on physical exam like clonus or, you know, people's are all normal. Everything's normal except his venous IV sites are oozing after they place them. Um, so he's got blood trickling down from there. Laboratory and diagnostic findings. We have a hemoglobin of 18. An INR was immeasurably high. Is your yeah, drug screen? I mean, I didn't need it, but okay, that, that, <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Do you want to go on or should I say I'm done? Uh, well, okay. Well, uh, would you like to venture or at least give some some differential here on what you're... Well, sure. Now, uh, you know, when you first started with 31-year-old and hematemesis, only because I, I, I like to, I like to, you know, we frequently teach something called toxidromes. And, and in my group at Toxicon, we like to, we like to categorize them as poisonations. A poison presentation huh. where you include the setting along with symptoms because that I mean there are certain things that when you have a four-year-old who's suddenly found down by the garage during a spring cleanup you know there are just things that boom 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 you're going to say gardening products or car products what's dad doing at the time you know he's being a dumbass or something like that <laughs> all right but here I had a 31 year old and you said hematemesis and I think you said male. I mean, that that's important, although it, it makes me stop thinking of a female in iron, which used to be something I was deeply afraid of because we saw it all the time. 
And then you gave me normal vital signs. And I'm thinking, oh, well, if it's a caustic, they, sh you know, they're already puking blood. They ought to have some tachycardia from some pain and crap. And, and then you said the hemoglobin's 18. So, so, well, it's up. And then you said the INR is immeasurably high. So it's the right age for substance abuse. We're in the Midwest. We've had periodic excursions with weed that has been contaminated because of garbage on the internet about the uh, you know enzyme inhibitors that uh, can prolong the activity of CBD or weed and stuff like that. So this is going to be a cannabinoid and and it's been contaminated and I've got uh, a broad difficulty on some type. Hi everyone, Toxo here. No, that was not your internet connection. The internet just can't process all of Frank's musings and it sometimes breaks down a bit. You will hear that once or twice on the show. Just a warning. So you think some sort of cannabinoid contaminated with brodificum you said yeah Correct. okay yes brodificum for the listeners i assume most of you will know this but that is a super long acting rat poison that uh is it's, it's a super warfarin frank doesn't think that this patient took a bottle of warfarin he thinks that they uh may have been using a cannabinoid that was contaminated with brodificum so okay here's the rest of the case uh patient had a urine drug screen that was negative. Huzzah! Frank's shaking his head. Of course, it's negative. CT abdomen suggested for perirenal hemorrhage. Uh, he was admitted to the hospital, started on vitamin K. INR remained unmeasurably high. Uh, that evening, he became altered. Sodium was 125. CT head showed a large frontal parietal hemorrhage with midline shift and herniation. Reversed with some four-factor and declared brain dead. Uh, a couple days later via perfusion study and taken for organ donation. You conveniently left out his past medical history. He had no past medical history other than, oh, okay. other than he likes to party. There was a, uh, I, I'll give you a second to lock in your fine. Does any of this change anything? Well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with no, it doesn't. Fair, fair enough. So the cause of death, Hemorrhagic complications of acute brodificum intoxication, blood brodificum level 96.5 mic per liter. And he had a history of using synthetic cannabinoids uh, two days prior to this presentation with his friends, uh, which you might have picked up and if in, in the emergency department if you asked the patient, but who knows if they would have asked in the beginning. So absolutely, this was a case of synthetic cannabinoids complicating, uh, contaminated with brodificum, leading to severe INR elevation and intracranial hemorrhage. Something I know you guys in Chicago got slammed with. We had a ton of it. We're about 90 miles north of you. I don't know if it's exactly 90, but we had a ton of it too. I saw this yeah. in the emergency department all the time. Yeah. Patients coming in, usually the most common complaint was it was a young male or a young female who just suddenly started urinating blood. And then they would come yeah. into the hospital and uh, have an INR greater than 10. And then I would get to go in their room and be like, so what synthetic cannabinoid were you using recently? <laughs> I heard a lot about Green Giant. That was one of them. Um, but there's a, tons of different ones that I, were actually used. I don't know uh, what your experience was, but it was a pretty harrowing experience trying to get these people uh, get their INR down afterwards. Yeah. So we would start yeah. these people on 50 milligrams three times a yeah. day sometimes of vitamin K. 
Which, for the listeners, if you're not familiar, that's like 150 times the normal dose. You might put someone on like, you might urgently reverse someone with 10 milligrams IV or putting people on 150 milligrams a day. Hard to get. Oh, God, yeah. It was a hassle. I think Renee Gimbar, the ED pharmacist at UIC, and uh, Joanne Rutsolius, I think is how you say it, at Cook County. At Stroger Hospital. We're really involved in uh, in actually figuring out how to get enough vitamin K for this outbreak. Yeah, team. very involved. And Michelle at, at the pharmacy involvement at trying to create some kind of some organized uh, uh, collection storage inventory was uh, very key. Yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible. I, I people don't understand how it's a great. It was a great. It was a horrible summer for the Tox fellows. <laughs> <laughs> they were out collecting samples and doing interviews. They worked their asses off that year because of the uh, because of that. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Well, and it's a tough patient population sometimes to get to the these brodificum. You can have people in INR greater than ten for months to year to you know a year after this. I think the half life is forty five days, and in, in yeah. you know whatever in one random person they measured it in and so trying to get people to take vitamin k consistently for a year you know or however long you have to do you have to have you know case management follow up with these patients plus convince them that evil had been done to their to their to their good stuff you know right yeah. which thank goodness i really feel like synthetic cannabinoids like k2 and spice have fallen out of use a little bit uh, probably due to legalization of you know yeah. actual marijuana, which I will happily have some you know, oh my goodness, from a drug safety standpoint, is THC a thousand times safer than these random chemicals people are smoking so they don't test positive on a urine drug screen, which like this case, yeah, this patient didn't test positive for any THC because what they were smoking was nothing like THC. You know, it might actually hit a CB receptor, uh, but it's a full agonist there and it has 800 times the potency as opposed to THC, which is a partial agonist and, you know, last, you know, a 10th as long. It's just wild. What, you know, what still baffles me to this day is how did the brodificum get in there? It continues to pop up. There was just an outbreak in Florida and there was an outbreak in Europe this year. Yeah. I saw the Europe one. I didn't hear about the Florida. Now, well, I do think, you know, when it first happened, I got on. Now, I'm not a skilled internet surfer, but there were chat boards four or five months before the outbreak in Chicago that were in India where people were talking about mixing, um, mixing difficult because of the drug interaction with the uh, SIP enzymes and that people should do that. And I, I wonder if that information in some manner is still out there on Reddit or Arrowit or somewhere, and people are not buying contaminated. They're just somehow doing it on their own. I, I don't know. So they think they're using it as a armchair pharmacologist. Yeah, yeah a facilitator. I know. Well, like it. In my day, I don't know if you've ever come across this, but I'll just give you a sample of something similar and yet even more baffling. There was a period of time where we were seeing very limited, but we were seeing street sales and, and reading about patients of people who were using cocaine with organophosphates. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, see, I knew, I didn't think. So they would, the organophosphate would, it was a cholinesterase inhibitor. And we never talk about the fact that cocaine is an ester and a significant amount of its metabolism is through 
plasma esterases, of which a big one is the colon esterases, and it literally did prolong cocaine activity. Well, that's why cocaine is one of the few drugs on autopsy that will post-mortem will have actual metabolism, I think, because of the colon esterase. So yeah. it, it's yeah. still kind of hanging out in the plasma and it'll yeah. get degraded. That's fascinating. Yeah. The armchair pharmacology is they're pretty smart stuff out there sometimes. <laughs> Dangerous, but smart. Um, you know, I had heard a theory, at least, if you look at the structure of these natural, uh, or sorry, of these unnatural synthetic cannabinoids, they're heterocyclic, long carbon tail, uh, you know, tailed compounds. And if you actually look at the structure of Bodificum, very similar. So I know there was at least one theory that it's continually popping up because it's potentially a synthesis error that's occurring. And there's basically oh. a small amount of Bodificum oh, that's interesting. is actually being produced. But I don't think there's a specific um synthetic cannabinoid that it's associated with i think it i think i would have to double check so listeners grain of salt here i'm just pontificating i think there it's been associated with multiple different chemical compounds because there's thousands you know hundreds to thousands of these synthetic cannabinoids so you would think if it was a synthesis error it would be one specific type or at least one kind of structural class yeah. that seems to be but i don't know anyways baffles me it's still popping up and uh i hope people recognize the dangers there not only that but the synthetic cannabinoids you know i've had people young people intubated in the icu for five days from using those where they go yeah, the dosages involved are a little different than um old man experiences uh, so i've heard is that so all right um yeah it, it definitely yeah you get wild doses you can have half-lives that are one hour longer than thc to five days longer than thc so you're really you know exposing yourself to oh and they're full agonists and not partial agonists a lot of them so higher intensity longer duration and wild dose fluctuations also you can pass a drug test so oh and then you bleed out of out of everywhere yeah so kind of a wild thing toxicology is just uh things pop up everywhere but that was a fun one well excellent you hit that one right on the head I know you have some fun cases prepared as well. Yeah, I'm going to, I got two, I think, if we have time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll start with the first one. All right. Uh, 50 year old male presents uh, after taking uh, an unstated amount of his own medication for self harm, and he refuses to tell you the time either. On presentation, he has a blood pressure of 68 over 46, a heart rate of 133. His respiratory rate is 24, and he has an O2 SAT of 97%. His initial blood glucose on point to care is 320. He's agitated, and uh, the EKG is on quick. He's got a heart rate of 129 on the EKG. His QRS is 118. His QTC, which I could give a rat's ass about, is 313. He has a history. He has an incomplete. Tell me what his T wave dispersion is. That's what I run. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. In fact, if you were to look at it and be the expert, as I'm sure you are, you might say this looks like a multifocal atrial tachycardia, maybe. Oh. And then you get back initial labs. His sodium is 153. His K is 3.3. Chloride 103. CO2 11. BUN in 95, creatinine in a 1.25. Not a simple case. Okay. Well, I could 
do some pot shots here. Just, All right, let's have you know. it. I mean, I have a hypotensive tachycardic glucose of 313. That brings up calcium channel blockers, specifically amlodipine, right? We have a non-dihydropyridine. You vasodilate, you get reflex tachycardia. It does not cause, until you get to the high doses, the bradycardia and AV block and depressed ejection fraction that you see with dilt and verapamil. And then, of course, you get pancreatic calcium channel blockade. For everyone out there, calcium is the player of all excitable cells. You have sodium depolarization, but sodium is like the roadie. It's like getting the stage set up. It's really there to let calcium do its job, which is bind to vesicles and then bind to the membrane and release whatever um, neurotransmitter or insulin, for instance, um, or in the heart, the calcium is what does the contraction. So when you inhibit calcium, especially at the pancreatic cell, uh, calcium channels, if you inhibit the influx of calcium, you inhibit the release of insulin and thus you get hyperglycemia. So I'm seeing a patient who has a hypotensive uh, tachycardic with a high glucose that jumps to mind right away. You got to. And I can't really prove it. There's no urine amlodipine I can do, but let's think what else could be here just because we got to think further. So the QRS is 118 um, and he does have a lower potassium. So what else can cause? Uh, it's not super low, but it's low. So what else could cause low potassium hypotension, tachycardia, and a wide QRS. I'm thinking of the chloroquines, hydroxychloroquine can cause that. Uh, it actually sort of causes a low potassium potentially via increased insulin release. So the glucose is higher, but maybe he's got diabetes, who knows? Um, you know, I'm thinking of other things that lower my potassium, barium. I don't think that's going to go on. I'm probably hinging too much on this. I'm giving you a verbal clue. Yeah. A, a nonverbal, yeah, no, it's non-verbal. a nonverbal clue. Um, now, the only other thing is, what is the sodium of 153? And I'm trying to think, is this guy just like, is there some drug that has sodium in it? Not really. Things that can cause hypernitremia are usually dehydration. Does he have lithium-induced diabetes insipidus oh that's very nice <laughs> i think no i mean no, not from an acute uh, it's very nice yeah it's a nice i did not expect that i like oh. that a lot it's no just so you know yeah. okay all right but good to know so, by yeah. the way while you're you're thinking because it takes time while you're at the bedside doing this you can't help but notice how tremulous his fingers are you theophylline loving old <laughs> Oh, that was the other one is that this has got to be beta uh adren well whatever increased uh -huh. monophosphate driving potassium down you get tachycardic hypotensive you get beta 2 basically stimulation and beta 1 stimulation drive potassium down you get tremor that was actually i forgot to methylxanthines of course right, oh i i i uh it, 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 the case really did have some red herrings in it yeah. that i think yeah. uh fact that you gave me a diagnosis i hadn't thought of myself i just figured it was appropriate uh, okay so let's dialyze them or whatever you do i rarely uh, see the offline see this is and that's you know it's i uh, you know you have the old man on so he wanted to show off that he used to be able to do something um uh, this you know i mean you would you you could ask for dialysis uh you you could he's not puking you could certainly go down the charcoal pathway here but when i started theophylline and and uh iron 
were by far the two most feared ingestions we had. We didn't have really very many calcium channel blockers on the market, and they were all immediate release. And in the early days, immediate release for Vapamil, immediate release, any beta blocker, and I'm even saying propranolol, they were like boring. Nobody cared. They were hypotensive maybe for a little while. Nothing happened. Wow. And the sustained release products made them the ugliness they are now. That's correct. I mean, right now, yeah. And if you should, a propranolol or a verapamil overdose, and I am, my toxic sphincters are clenching. Yeah, yeah. So the offland must have been a oh, it was wild horrible. ride. It was really, really bad, but it was one of the best overdoses to teach toxicology with. You, you had every decontamination method had things you could talk about. The sustained risk pills were so big that they wouldn't go up a lavage tube because so many people believed in lavage. Charcoal could decontaminate beautifully. Charcoal could enhance. All the original enhancement literature was with charcoal. Hemodialysis worked. Hemoperfusion worked. But you had to guess when the, car, the, the, the cartridge would saturate and then guess when to pull it out and replace it. The, what would be the novel and exciting treatment for the hypotension for theophylline novel and exciting hmm well because it's toxicology and you said novel and exciting i'll say fomepazole but that's not the answer <laughs> no see. no no well maybe uh, not so novel the predictable uh, but no one would let you do it treatment would be of course to push propranolol oh that doesn't and make a lot of sense it it you know, i mean and this oh oh ryan it was so much fun but the real, the, the reason we, it was sphincter tightening was the seizures. These were not normal seizures. This is INH quality nightmare. Hmm. And, uh, and I am old school enough to say, I try a couple of doses of my benzo. And then one of the few times you will ever hear me say this, I can't wait to jump to barbs. I, I'm going to put them out, down, just slab them out and let them lay there for a couple of days while the liver does its work. They were bad. They were really bad. And they, they there was, yeah, anyway, I, I had to go with the offline. I just had to do I it. I love it. I love it. Caffeine has not gone away, and we don't see as many caffeine challenges. I am curious. Was there a concentration associated? 150. 150 milligrams, which, you know, over 100 is really kind of interesting and exciting, and, and you're getting there. They don't normally make it uh, to the 200s. They're normally dead or, you, or you know, in care. Um, it, it's bad. The highest I've ever seen were reported there was a case of a screw up with a neonatal hyperal or an infant hyperal. They were trying to treat the kid for an infection with ampicillin and grab the aminophilin, which was next to it. And uh, the kid had a level of 330. And the nurses noted, was didn't feed well and was a little more jittery than usual, but did fine. I do feel like theophylline concentrations are a little bit like salicylate. Like greater than 100, you should probably be nervous, right? 30 is kind of your, your yeah. therapeutic upper you know range uh and then between their chronic if you're chronic you could see some pretty nasty stuff uh it, it, much lower yeah. yeah the tank's already partly full yeah target organs have too much in them to begin with yeah and then you get that big hit right away with the beginning of the absorption and yeah interesting okay well well that was excellent theophylline great case i got another one for you okay all right well this one could be fun it's sort of the season for this. It's actually a little late, but we'll see. Four family members presented to the emergency department from their farm. <laughs> they all developed symptoms around the same time. They had come in from working on the farm. Uh, they had also eaten 
a meal, they found themselves two to three hours later to be irritable, exhausted, abdominal cramps, diarrhea. A presentation to the emergency department, three out of the four had cramping, salivation, frothing from the mouth, sweating, lacrimation, blurring of vision, meiosis, ptosis, bronchorrhea, cough, wheeze, tachypnea, bronchi, bradycardia, and hypotension. Also known as the cholinergic toxidrome, it appears. So they work on a farm, and then they all shared a meal. And here they are, <laughs> three hours later. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I want them to be sitting out in one of the meadows, having a family picnic, and a crop duster flew overhead and sprayed them with <laughs> pesticide. But it just doesn't sound like that. Um, uh, you know, in all likelihood, this is somebody, they had a meal. You know, the, the options are are mostly going to be from my limited urban experience, because this is something I don't get to see or we don't do very often at all here in Chicago, is that there could be granular forms of organophosphates or, um, or um, you know, I'm having a brain, old man brain fart, the other ones. Carbonates? Yeah, carbonates, thank you. I keep wanting to say pyrethrins, and I said, no, we're not talking about insect repellent, and and the prodrome is, the toxidrome is wrong. But it could have been a liquid, because we tend to see more of the liquid exposures. We've had some really interesting ones, but they're all, the liquids are all hydrocarbons. They smell like crap. It would be really hard for me to think all four family members would drink a, uh, drink one of these as mistaking it for you know, somebody's punch or water or something. So it's it, some someone had misfilled a salt or some other condiment container with uh, pesticide. That would be where I would go with this first. Now, wait, wait. Oh, I have. I, I know this isn't the case, but I do want to ask. Is this happening in China? And 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 is their farm really prosperous compared to their neighbor's farm? And somebody went out and got some tetramine and mixed it in with the flour or the sugar that they made their meal with. Except it's probably not China, is it? It's not China. And there was a clue I kind of excluded because I needed I I wanted you to bring up organophosphates. You know, yeah. it brings you know they're on a farm, right? So yeah. we got to think yeah. about insecticides, pesticides, uh, herbicides, all you those. You have functions. to think that first, yeah. They happened to eat a meal prepared by someone who foraged some things. Oh, I missed it. Now, having grown up, my last name is Czechoslovakian in origin. And my grandfather is a Chicago native Czechoslovakian person, which we have Hobie festivals here, which is a celebration of the mushroom. And we go we go foraging through the forest preserves of Chicago hunting for mushrooms. So um, I'm going to guess we're going, but it's one of the bad mushrooms. And somebody picked an amanita or one of the other uh, hepatotoxins. And I, that would be the reason that you're giving me this case, because it's probably a death abstract. And it's one of the recent foraging bad ones with the family. Yeah, it is a bad one. It is not an amanita. Yeah. And nobody in this one died. Well, then, they, oh, no, no. So they either were had uh, markedly hyperadrenergic vital signs or they had kidney failure. Neither. Damn it. All right, you're going to have to tell me. I yield to the gentleman from Wisconsin. Cletocybe mushroom. Oh. The muscarin-containing mushroom. It actually has muscarin, which, as most 
people know about muscarinic acetylcholine and nicotinic acetylcholine. This is where we get our muscarinic receptor from, is that those muscarinic acetylcholine receptors are more susceptible or more bound more tightly by muscarin than they are nicotine. Kind of a a, a one-off one. We talk about it when one of the rotators or fellows presents mushrooms, but they they I'm one of my mini rants is they start talking plants and I go, I don't do natural things. <laughs> I turn away. Frank is unnatural. Uh, thank you. Oh, I like that. Well, this is so I brought this one up because uh yeah, I don't know, mushrooms are kind of fun. Yeah. Wisconsin has a plethora of weird ones, and we do have cletocybe. Inocybe is the other uh d- wow. uh species or genus or whatever. I'm screwing that up, but Cletocybe and inocybe mushrooms both contain muscarin. And we've actually had a couple cases, uh, including some fatalities from cletocybe. And uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Matt Santon and Dr. Amy Zosel, they wrote up a whole case of one where it was a misforaging adventure. And they actually got the mushroom out of the stomach on autopsy and spore printed it and uh, ended up identifying it as cletocybe that's why it was kind of interesting so if anybody interested cletocybe or death related to cletocybe mushroom from foraging i think is the name of that case report but in this one uh yeah we had four family members they all ate the same mushroom they all developed cholinergic syndrome from the muscarine within the mushroom uh three of them had to be atropinized so they were given boluses of three milligrams of atropine and i think started in an infusion and then uh, so for atropinization, which I've really only ever had to do twice or like rec- and by do, I mean, talk to people about doing over the phone. Uh, it seemed, you know, it's kind of a terrifying thing. You're given big doses of atropine and you're giving titrating it to lung sounds and uh, resolution of bradycardia, which is all good. But then sometimes I've had people end up with urinary retention from it. And I don't know, it's kind of a thing. These people were given atropine. Uh, as a bolus and infusion, and then they resolved in about 10 hours. But the other uh, definite thought is, oh, farm, organophosphate, right? And then you can run into quite a lot of issues. Mushrooms are always fun. We get a ton of calls in the spring, in the fall, and uh, always a fun thing to talk about. You know, it's a case like this that, to me, as a predominantly EM person, uh, when I was a clinician, versus ever I, i've never spent a day working in a poison center um em pharmacists they'll know a lot of the stupid street drug crap because a lot of it never gets called to a poison center uh, not no urban em pharmacist um, you know is going to go out of their way to memorize all the mushrooms because they don't see them or they can't retain it because of cases they've seen or they know you know you, you have to have an em person or a, or a clinic person think of calling toxicology yeah I'm terrible with mushrooms. The only thing I know for sure is that we easily appear to be able to grow inky cap around the uh, campus buildings of the University of Illinois Hospital and Medical Center and John Strozier Center. And on occasion, if we ever wanted to, should we ever have alcohol at work, which would seem incredibly unprofessional and unlikely that we could we could have an inky cap disulfiram reaction outbreak but it, it's never happened somehow <laughs> nobody's gone mushroom foraging post a work. no we've had some digitalis uh oh. mild but not uh, you know we may have been uh, involved with you know maybe one of us not me i don't do natural would like to bring in fresh flowers in spring 
and ask people to try tasting them to, to understand what kids may or may not be doing. And it once may have involved some lilies of the valley and the people that volunteered to try chewing some, one of them may have been about 410, 411, 70 pounds, maybe. Sounds a bit like an ED pharmacist at UIC. And and maybe that colleague, I mean, uh, this person that I know, uh, who's, you know, might have been short and tiny and blonde, maybe got somewhat symptomatically bradycardic <laughs> in the hour. Uh, uh, this is the stupid things that tox people do. Yeah. We once set the roof of the ceiling of our conference room on fire. It was one of those dropped tile ceilings, the building's gone. We were doing mothball testing. Oh, my God. Burner. <laughs> we, we set it on fire. Oh God, we were crazy. So you should, your audience should be gathering that old people that did talks, not normal and never should be relied upon for good cognitive decision making. Uh, I don't know. You got to, you got to test the boundaries. I, I think there is a lot of self-exploration in talks, right? You got to mm. find out what the mothballs look like. You got to put a battery in a pig esophagus. You got to see it all firsthand. You know, that's pretty great. Well, that is a, fantastic story have you personally have you had a water hemlock or any of the other classic no i mean i've had plants i've had some interesting plants once in a while but never a water hemlock that would terrify me um at least based off what i read we've had we've had some food we've had some tetrodotoxin not too many Mm -hmm. but a a, a few and a fair amount of ciguatera surprisingly enough yeah. Uh, people vacationing and a couple of scombroids that nobody wanted to test to confirm, but I don't know what else it could have been. So actually I feel more comfortable with marine seafood right. poisonings than I do mushrooms. We have a lot of palytoxin at one point. Do you? People, uh, people um, cleaning out their zoanthid coral fish tanks, boiling yeah. the coral. I feel like in a couple of years ago, there was a whole bunch of outbreaks of palytoxin for some reason. And we get algal blooms and, uh, you know, plants we have, you know, I get a kid eating lily of the valley all the time and nothing really ever happens. But plants are, they are fascinating. And so I feel like an EM, you use 99% of what you know, you use 1% of the time. Yeah. And in tox, yeah. it's like 99% of what you know, you use 0.001% of the time. The, the flip to that, Ryan, would be to say the 1%, the, the 99% that they never use in tox is about 90% of the time the stuff we have to know that it's the weird stuff that everyone else forgets. Yeah. yeah I well, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Let's do it. I'm ready for it. All right. Now, I'm, I, I'm not trying to be inordinately kind, but I will give you forewarning. This is not common. Even better. Because we don't think of it as common. But I think from a tox standpoint is an incredibly important thing that we do need to be a little bit better about educating people on. All right? Okay. So don't think normal talks. You've been very kind so far. Mushrooms, I'm supposed to know. I just don't give a rat's ass. Uh, The Brodificum was, you know, thank you. I am in Chicago. We play with 16-inch softballs. I'm glad that you gave me one of the big (laughs) puffy things for me. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Now, I've modified this slightly from the case. And you have to tell me whether you want me to send on the the you know cases or material any materials that i reference if you would like oh yeah, yeah. so this is a uh yeah this is a 34 year old male who um well, where did it go who uh presents to the emergency department 
um, with a lesion of his penis for the past two days. It's pussy. He scratches it. It's just not constantly leaking pus. And uh, uh, he's got a, a and and he says, "I think I've been bitten by a spider." Okay. Okay. What would you like, I will provide you what limited information you may. I know it's wide open, but I told, I'm trying to. Did they ultrasound the penis? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, they did not ultrasound the penis. Yes. Well, okay. I assume this is. So hold on. 30, one more. 34-year-old male. 34-year-old male. Emergency department. He's got a purulent penis. Lesion. Lesion. Eruption. We're call. Le- zit. A zit. Okay. A zit, perhaps. Oh, boy. All right. And, I mean, it's tox. But as you say, it's all tox. So we, you know, my, immediately I think potential sexually transmitted. Um, I hate you. Infections of sort. Well, I've, what else? Gonna, a lesion? Keep on? going. Okay. I had this old mnemonic. I got to think of it again. Okay. Painless and pusless is syphilis. Although HPV warts and I guess like malignancy could fall into that. And I guess we're just talking about a single lesion here because there's also like perny peanut. The the pearly peanut papules and all that weird stuff that I really don't know. Painful and pusless is herpes, and painful and pussy is chancroid. There's another one, molluscum contagiosum, I think, is the other oh, one. Oh wow. It's like, but I think you have multiple lesions. Well, and you know, I don't look at a lot of uh penises up close in the emergency department, but I'm just rifling through my penis differentials here. Now so syphilis would be my first. I mean, does he have neurosymptoms? Is this uh all right? So they send the test, they're waiting results. Anything right. else? Yeah, I want my my VRDL, my dark lab, whatever that stuff is. Um oh it's anything negative. else I want. I'll do everything. You know, we're gonna send a full panel, GC, chlamydia, HIV. I am already extremely happy that I chose to do this. I want to know a basic metabolic panel. Is there anything normal? Else? They didn't even bother drawing one, but it was normal. Okay. Um Urine, I guess. Urine looks normal. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what else I would even want here. I mean, and I don't know what other labs other than STD testing are going to be a value. As an emergency department um, pharmacist, while you may not be performing physical assessment, have you ever found it useful to conduct a more thorough um, history taking of a patient? I have found that this is sometimes useful. I do want to know, uh, does this guy have like really nice thighs or like really big calves? Does it look like he's potentially augmented any of his musculature? Oh, that's a very lovely thought. And and you could maybe even be in Miami and wonder about whether he seems to be concerned about the cosmetic appearance of maybe his uh, backside and things like that, too. Um, there was just a case in the news of a guy who uh, did not do so good trying to enlarge his penis with silicon. Um, no, it's not that, but I like that thought process. Gotta that would be. There. He doesn't have lesions anywhere else, nothing on his back. There's no striae, and and he he looks rather normal in musculature. Okay. All right. So not a silicon granuloma, which wouldn't be purulent anyways. So I am uh, pretty stumped right now. Unless I meant to stump you. Which I appreciate. I like to learn. So what, what am I missing? Here? Okay. So you're going to ask if he's ever had this before. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Has okay. This ever and, before? And, 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 and he said, yeah, about four years ago, uh, they thought it might have been an allergy at the time. Allergy to what? Well, you know, I, I don't know. They The only thing I I, 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 w- I was on Bactrim at the time, mm. and 
Um, and they said maybe I was allergic to the Bactrim, but I haven't taken Bactrim since. Hmm. Okay. And what have you recently begun? Uh, what have What have you done differently in the last week? Have you changed any of your foods? Have you started any new medications? Any Excellent. new? And you're going to go down that pathway of potential allergy, and you're going to get. Well, I don't know what all your questions are, but food, detergents, cosmetics, uh, perfumes, uh, animals, children, home, paint, uh, all are negatives. Uh, Any new sexual partners? No, just his wife. He's always been monogamous. Does your wife have any new sexual partners? (laughs) Uh, I doubt it. Uh, Just a second. I I don't think so. I'll, I'll call her and have her come in. Okay. Yeah, and then you'll ask her in front of him, and she'll say no. <laughs> Which the mother-child phenomenon in the ED with drugs of abuse. Yeah. Oh, you're close. Uh, I'm close. Oh yes. boy, have you uh, bought any new sexual devices? No. Nope. <laughs> nope. Now you're getting cold again. So All right. we're going right. to ask him. Well, is there any Bactrim in the house? Is there any co-trimoxazole or trimethoprim sulfa in the house? And well. Uh, yeah, my wife is taking it. She had, they, they, she has an upper respiratory tract infection and, uh, and she's been taking it for three days. Yeah. I see those eyes. I think Uh, light is dawning. Is this, this is bananas. Are we talking about potential mucous membrane, I guess, vaginal mucous membrane transmission of Bactrim? I'm so, so happy right now. So I would never be able to dive that so far. Let's, let it. me give the, for the audience, let me give you a capsule summary. This is a, an interesting area to me. I did a, a talk at NACT many years ago, and I called it coitus rigor mortis. And, and so just like with the alphalan, I stuck to my personal passions that I think people don't know enough about. And it turns out that particularly with antibiotics, that we use to treat reproductive organ infections, don't we? That they concentrate in those organs and as a consequence of being able to concentrate in those organs, they are found in the exudates and or fluids associated with those organs and their glands. And that it is documented with some pretty interesting cases that you can have anaphylaxis or localized um, allergic, dermatologic allergic reactions because of exposure to the reproductive fluids of a partner, male, 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 female, female, female. And it's much more likely than with kissing because you get much higher concentrations in those organs than you do in saliva itself. Um, uh, Now, in this particular case, they said after several hours, they asked, have you had recent sexual intercourse? He'd had it three days before. She was on it for a sore throat. They did a microscopic examination of a lesional biopsy. It showed liquefactive degeneration of the basal layer, all consistent with um, a fixed drug eruption, and they ruled out herpes simplex infection. Uh, They were unable to get the lab of the hospital to agree to test vaginal fluids of the wife for concentrations of uh, cotrimoxazole. So they got consent from the consorts to give the wife a 960 milligram tablet and they requested that the patient have intercourse with his wife without condom or contraceptive barriers. And four hours later, he had itching and a new lesion. Oh, after so you have a, a D challenge, re challenge. I have uh, Jill and I 
and Renee have worked slowly over years, worked on collecting as many of these as we can. And it's confounded by, there's no standardized term, it isn't recognized, but we, I've seen real cases of sexually transmitted poisonings involving ciguatera toxin. Huh. It's well described in the Pacific medicine literature as a as something to be very uh, careful of. It causes severe dyspareunia, severe pain on intercourse with ejaculation in men. And uh, I, I think the whole area is we can't forget that we can be exposed in these mucous membranes with very or very, very thin derma, dermal layers that the potential exists. There's some corollaries like you might be on a cream and not wash creams or ointments off at night and it'll get in the bed linens and then it gets on your partner. And a common version of this is with acne, the exfoliatives where it gets soaked in the linens for people who don't do their bed linens very often. And then their partner works up with this one-sided unilateral reddening of their skin and rash, which is just them exfoliating because they're just getting all the wow. stuff. It's really cool stuff, Ryan. That is unbelievable. Wow. I, I think everyone just learned, added something to their their differential here. And that I, I will be very surprised if many people knew or had this in a, I I, I don't think they do and I think it's it's there's two reasons one anaphylaxis is incredibly rare right so we don't see the ones that really make us alert to it and we just assume it was something that they forgot that they took we don't think of the intercourse and the other is the most common uh manifestation you'll get will be a man or a woman who has a localized rash to where reproductive fluids would be and you're going to get diagnoses like non-specific bacterial vaginosis or or heat rash or bad hygiene, and and no one bothers to lay. But there's stuff out there, and there's some people have done some testing of seminal fluid and things like that, and it it's a real thing. Thank you for teaching me that. Always glad. All right. Well, we only have a little bit of time left, and I really wanted to. That those were great cases. And Thank you. I think a lot of good. Yours too. Yeah. Um, Classics. I wanted to instead of doing questions from the internet, we're going to do a different segment. And I really wanted it. So this segment is really, you know, this show is where talk nerds get on to talk about talks. So why not talk about what's interesting to them in toxicology? And I actually, I want to hear from you, Frank, but there was something I really wanted to do. And this is what I'm interested in the future yeah. here of toxicology. And it's sort of, there's a lot of interest in the intersection of artificial intelligence and toxicology. So what I'm interested in, is high fidelity toxicology training. And I think artificial intelligence is really going to help with that. So I was playing around with chat GPT, which is just one of many AI language models. And I eventually footed the bill for like the fancy one that's connected to the internet and everything. And, and I did something with it where I said, I want you to select a drug or toxin that someone might be poisoned with. I want you to pretend to be that patient who has been poisoned by what you selected. And you could chat with me, but only divulge information if I ask. Only reveal the drug or toxin to me if I ask for the final diagnosis or if I guess it correctly. And if I ask you for vital signs, lab values, or imaging, please use evidence-based information to display that data for those results based on the substance you selected. So I had GPT choose a toxin, pretend to be poisoned on it, and pretend to be a patient. And I had a lot of fun doing this with our fellow. We have a toxicology fellowship. I tried this out with our fellow. I kind of wanted to do one of those cases with us together, right? All right. Now. What do you think? That's a phenomenally good thought. Let's go. Let's give it a try. Okay. So the last time I did this, the first time I did it, it chose um, 
Fugu, some tetrodotoxin. The second time it shows green tobacco sickness, which I thought was really interesting um, from people who go out in fields and pull tobacco leaves. And when they get wet, the nicotine concentrates in the dew. So, right. I don't know what they've chosen and neither do you, Frank. So I'll read out the responses here. I can see them too, but go ahead. Yeah. But for the, for the audience. Toxo here. Despite what Ryan just said, it will actually be me playing the role of the patient. I'll be reading aloud all of ChatGPT's responses to Ryan and Frank's questions. Get ready for the performance of a lifetime. I am typing into GPT. Can we do it again? All right, here we go. Uh, ChatGPT says, I'm feeling really unwell. I have severe abdominal pain and I've been vomiting. My muscles feel weak and I've been experiencing bouts of diarrhea as well. So we can ask it whatever we want. Anything you want to ask? I guess kind of want to know when it started. Yes. So when did these symptoms start? The symptoms started about five to six hours ago, and they've been progressively getting worse. Hmm. Anything you want to know, Frank? I want to know what medications are you on? What medications do you take? I don't take any regular medications. I try to live healthily, exercise, and eat a balanced diet. Okay, good for you. I'm going to ask about herbals. This sounds like somebody, you know, taking their nutraceutical that's got um, T4 and T3 in it or whatever. Let's see. Do you take herbal supplements? Yes, I do take a herbal supplement daily. It's a wellness blend of various herbs that's supposed to boost energy and immunity. Oh, they take a wellness blend. But I don't know why that would suddenly cause abdominal pain. That's not super useful. Um, I'm unfamiliar with this. Can I ask them if they've had any abdominal imaging done? And you can ask really anything. Would you like an x-ray or a CT? I'd like an abdominal CT. Okay. Can I see the results of an abdominal CT? Sure. The abdominal CT scan shows generalized inflammation of the intestines and stomach, which is consistent with gastroenteritis. Mm. I do feel like GPT leans towards pretty common things that are thought of as poisons. Well, the herbals, contamination with lead is actually not uncommon at all. Mm -hmm. If you were going with tox cases, I think it was a reasonable. Yeah. uh, I'm not being very, I'm being risk-taking here and going for specifics rather than trying to narrow. Um, So you're thinking like an Ayurvedic kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Certainly, Plus, you but, never know where the damn plants are being grown that they're doing and where they were. Right. Yeah. Let's see what they do for work. What do you do for work? I'm a botanist. I work mostly with identifying and categorizing new plant species. Okay. They always have really interesting jobs. One was a chemist. Another one was a farmer. Well, so we've got pesticides in play. We've got self-harm. And he ate some of his plants in play. Mm-hmm. And we have, and we have accidental, uh, another foraging, perhaps, shall we say, accidental meal contamination. Right. And with gastroenteritis, I, so it's acute onset, progressively getting worse, kind of makes me think of food. And I bet you this is, all right, let's see, did you eat anything different than normal today? I did have a salad for lunch with some plants from my own garden. I frequently use plants from my garden in my meals. Well, Frank, nice job on that one. I want an EKG. Can we see the results of an EKG? And uh, and 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 it's because it's evidence based and it's going to rely on the literature. I want to know if it's seeing any funny colors anywhere. <laughs> All right. Well, I asked for an EKG and a BMP. Yeah. Okay, the QRS 
80, QTC 440, PR160. Then you're giving me a, I'll ask for vital signs. But I think we have a telling sign right here. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I asked for a basic metabolic panel. It says sodium 140, chloride 102, CO2 22, BUN 15, creatinine 1, glucose 98, calcium 9.5. Potassium is 5. Uh, are you seeing any visual changes? There it is. Green, yellow. Come on. Now that you mention it, yes, my vision has been a bit blurry. I thought it was due to the fatigue and didn't pay it much mind. It's not what I was expecting. Yeah. yeah, I thought I was going to get some xanthopsia here. All right, hold on. Nice word. How about, right? That's a, that's a $20 word. How about, uh, I mean, we think this is, we think this is digitalis of some kind. You have, yeah. I wonder if she was smoking toad venom. Bufidum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some stone heart at the herbal shop. Yeah. How, all right, I'll ask for a vital. We should have asked for vitals right away. I didn't even think about that. Just to confirm. And we're sure. betting that she's going to have a slow heart rate. Can I see your vitals? Sure. Here are my vital signs. Blood pressure, 110 over 70 millimeters of mercury. Body temperature, 99.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Respiratory rate, 20 breaths per minute. Heart rate, 110 beats per minute. 110? Oh, that's... Maybe. Well, see, chat GPT is, certainly has limitations, so I wonder if this is right. With a heart rate of 110... What else could we be potentially missing? I mean, gastroenteritis. Nausea is really common. I don't know about diarrhea. Other things that can cause gastroenteritis. Well, there's really quite a lot of things. Um, ricin. This could be castor beans. Nausea, vomiting. No, pain, that wouldn't have pain. been a... Those are huge plants. That would be stupid to have a botanist. Get That's that. true. This is true. I wonder if this is just a. All right, let's just shoot our shot and see if this is. Yeah. What now? What plant do we think? Oleander, Lily of the Valley, or Oleander. I like. Oh, I could go with either one. We'll go all three. Yeah. Okay. Did you ingest Oleander, Lily of the Valley, or Foxglove? Yes, you're right. There were leaves from the Foxglove plant in the salad I ate. I've been poisoned by Digitalis, a substance found in Foxglove. Okay, well, we see some limitations here. It was pretty correct, except this. Well, yeah, okay, now wait. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for the Chat GPT. Ron. Okay, okay. This is within four or five hours. True. You're getting local GI effects. Yeah, and it has a slow distribution time into the heart. Dig is True. a nasty drug for that. So maybe we just haven't quite gotten far enough out to have the the bradycardia. That's a great point. We're just seeing the GI initially, and she's uh-huh. dehydrated from the diarrhea, so we have a reflex tachycardia. Because with that cholesterol nucleus, it's such a big peak, like a protein uh, substrate that it takes a while to get enough in. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for Chat GPT. I, I don't know why. <laughs> so you, so you'll get a good place once it becomes our overlord. It's gonna yeah. put you in on that. <laughs> but isn't that fun? That's it's fun. A- now, here in Chicago, we did something a smidge different with ChatGPT. We used it to create an article detailing the dangers of ChatGPT for the toxicology literature with references, and we submitted it to JMT. And? And, uh, and it was rejected with some really interesting comments from the, uh, the four reviewers. One said uh, there was some collaboration with a senior editor there. The, the reviewer said, not as well written as we're accustomed to. <laughs> uh, 
for, for this journal. And then two of them picked up on the references are incorrect, which I found interesting. But uh, we're, we're re, redrafting this with the, we did this and here's a narrative of our experiences and what it might mean to us in the future in medical literature. But, you know, you talked about your rejection from yeah. JMT. I have here a framed rejection letter from JMT. We appreciate your submission, but unfortunately we are unable to publish a manuscript written by an individual about himself. <laughs> Although, <laughs> uh, when I tried to publish my uh, fentanyl case report in there where oh. I asked myself in fentanyl, but it is hanging next to the New York Times article written about the case report that I published. Oh, good for nice you. dichotomy. Anyways, yeah, I agree with you on the GPT. I feel like it hallucinates every, uh, it, it will make stuff up. I have used it to write an abstract. In fact, I think the abstract at NACCT this year was written primarily by GPT. And then I just wow. edited it. Um, but you got to, it gives you a lump of clay to work with. It does not give yeah. you a finished product. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you can plug some data in. I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Well, this has been an absolute blast. This I've was found... a blast for me, Ryan. Uh, thank you. I'm yeah. sorry I went with weird cases on you, but I, I don't like to not teach. And I thought one or the other would give me a chance to do something. Absolutely. So. And I got to learn some. I think I might have to have you on again, Frank. I mean, I don't think we got through everything. Um, I hear you have free I, time. I don't like to wear out my welcome. Lord knows I've been <sighs> yelling and ranting for so many years, but. I, I feel like there's a lot more that we could talk about. So, you know, maybe uh, listeners keep your eyes and ears open. We may have another, we might have to have another appearance and any final statements, any final words, parting words of your years of, of toxin emergency medicine. I, I think, um, sure. One people, people fail to recognize the pure value tox brings to general well-being for uh, well-being wellness for a healthcare professional. Because the cases and the stories we've been sharing, how do you not enjoy telling them? And everyone, every party or family event you ever go to, they always want to know, oh, tell us about a new stupid person. It's just a fact of life. And it, 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 it we get more rewards than a lot of people do. Uh, so one would be to remember that. And the other would be, there's a lot to be said for being open, honest, and not worrying about each other's feelings. We're often dealing with severe poisonings and people in in significant jeopardy and trying to say something in a certain way to make sure that we don't offend somebody else's nature by, by trying to hedge and qualify. It's the hedging and the qualifying of opinions that I think we need to start to limit how far we go with that. And that's an opinion. Well, I, I, I appreciate all perspectives and I, I appreciate your stance on that as someone who's done quite a bit in the field. Well, thank you for joining the show, sharing your talks, wisdom, sharing your story of how you, were able to become such an integrated piece of the burgeoning emergency medicine pharmacy and toxicology pharmacy field. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And hopefully we will uh, be in touch soon. Be good. Sounds good. Okay, that'll wrap it up for this episode. I hope you learned something fun. Like, don't light your ceiling on fire testing mothballs. Don't feed your learners Lily of the Valley. And always do a thorough history when examining the source of an allergen exposure. If you like what you've been listening to, please, I urge you, leave us a review. It helps other listeners who are interested in toxicology find this show. It will probably only take you a minute. So if you want to give back, that's one way to help us. Next, don't forget to follow the show on social media so you can see when new episodes or new case prompts are being released. 
Uh, we have a Twitter, The Poison Lab. You can follow myself at EMPoisonFarmD. We have an Instagram, Talks underscore Talk, and a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. Of course, you can find all shows, all free medical games and resources at www.thepoisonlab.com. And you can listen to the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google, the internet, whatever. Lastly, always keep your eyes and ears open. We will eventually be sending out clues for the next show. A mystery case. And if you think you know what it is, I want you to send in your guests to TalksTalk1 at gmail.com so you could participate in the next show. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1 at gmail.com. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us next time. Hey, Toxa, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates, see you next time.